it's not so much colorblindness as being blindfolded. It's ignoring the racism that already exists. This whole idea of neutrality and colorblindness is in fact a purposeful choice to uphold oppression. These are all part and parcel of an ongoing conservative legal mission to defang all of the Constitution's equitable tools. And so we should be demanding the fulfillment of the Reconstruction Amendments. We need to get way more comfortable saying the court is wrong and acting accordingly. Welcome to episode 167 of the Refuse Fascism Podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview with attorney and writer, Madiba Denny, discussing the U.S. Supreme Court's historic and devastating termination of race-conscious admissions programs at colleges and universities nationwide. Before we go further, I want to take a moment to send love to our listeners in Maui and everyone in Maui suffering from the deadliest U.S. wildfires in the last century. Thanks to everyone who is bringing this show to others, whether you're sending an episode to friends or fam sharing on the socials, whatever you're doing, it makes a difference. A special thank you to everyone who rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. It really is the best way to support the show. So after listening to today's episode, please go write a review, give us all the stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to reach others who want to refuse fascism in the name of humanity. I promised I'd have more to say about the indictments, the indictments of Trump, that is. And I do. First, I want to underscore that this indictment turns the DEFCON way up and highlights that threats like Carrie Lake's, quote, if you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you most of us are card carrying members of the NRA, end quote must be taken seriously. And let's be clear, it's not just Carrie Lake. Just listen to what Rep. Matt Gates said Saturday at Trump's side at the Iowa State Fair. Mr. President, I cannot stand these people that are destroying our country, that are opening our borders, that are weaponizing our federal law enforcement against patriotic Americans who love this nation as we should. We are having a great time at the fair. We love standing with you. But we know that only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C. And so to all my friends here in Iowa, when you see them come for this man, know that they are coming for our movement and they are coming for all of us. And as hard as you see them work, I need you working 10 times harder, 100 times harder. We're going to win Iowa. We're going to launch for the nomination. We're going to stay in the country Trump and the Republic fascists aren't throwing in the towel and preparing for defeat. They're fighting for a permanent win, one that eliminates for good all of their political enemies and all of the people 
who they think have destroyed, quote unquote, their country. This is what the fascists are promising when they say, quote, we know that only through force can we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C., end quote. And I got to ask, are we going to take them seriously or stick our heads in the sand? If they are able to reseize power, take the White House, we are talking about a blatant dictatorship in which the unchallenged domination of these fascists will be enforced at every level and by every means at their disposal. We're talking about a slow civil war quickly escalating into a one-sided slaughter. And reality check, the fascists are on the offensive now. They're not waiting patiently. From banning gender-affirming care to whipping up mobs who terrorize teachers and librarians to banning abortion, this violence is afoot now. Also consider that more than half of Republicans, including 77% of folks who identify as MAGA Republicans, said the indictments and investigation against Trump were an attack on people like them. And this is according to a CBS News YouGov poll that was taken shortly after the most recent indictment. Trump and the Republic fascists seize on each completely legitimate indictment as an opportunity to set norms ablaze and delegitimize institutions that have held this country together for over a century. Simultaneously, they're readying their base, their fascist, rabid base, to fight for their fully fascist future. Yes, white supremacist future. Yes, theocratic future. Yes, American chauvinist to its core. There was one quote from a New York Times article after the Iowa State Fair yesterday that I thought encapsulated so much. So I'm going to share it with y'all. This is Representative Brian Mass of Florida who came to Iowa to campaign for Trump. Quote, I want my president to be the biggest American chest thumper out there. If you cross him, he will slit your throat. And I get that out of President Trump, end quote. The fascists view these indictments as an attack against them by the Democrats, who to them are entirely illegitimate. How we respond to this matters tremendously. So I want to urge y'all to not put your hopes into the center holding that it'll all work out or to cheerlead for the norms to be restored, as so many are right now. Why? Well, just how likely do you think it is that Trump is found guilty and sentenced with decades in jail? And how likely do you think it is that this would go down without a tremendous bloody fight from his supporters who see him as their retribution? Remember when Trump lost by millions of votes and they stormed the Capitol hunting to hang Mike Pence? You think they're just going to throw the towel in? But also, let's not discount that regardless of this trial, Trump could still gain office legally. Yes, with gerrymandering, voter intimidation, or the help of his good friend from 2016, the Electoral College. Consider how much the voting suppression apparatus has been strengthened since then, where the fascist voting base counts, but the votes of Black folks don't. Okay, now speaking just to Sam for a minute, this increasingly volatile situation where there are fascists fighting amongst themselves or Democrats and Republican fascists going at it isn't waiting for 2024. Think about how the trials might unfold, the verdicts being read, etc. If we sit back, pop the popcorn and cheer, letting it stay a fight between the fascists and the Democrats who have at best served as a stopgap against the fascist takeover, if we let this stay on the terms of this system, 
we will be all but handing the future to these fascists. But not only that, we will be watching as the world burns when we, the people in our millions, have the rare opportunity, in part through this struggle, if we seize it, of actually getting rid of this whole monstrous system and forging a new course for humanity. And regardless of whether you agree with what I just said or not, this is a time for truth, not delusion, for struggle, not complacency. With that, here is my interview with Madiba. On June 29th, the fascist-dominated U.S. Supreme Court effectively overturned affirmative action. Not only does this decision reinforce white supremacy, it greatly accelerates the fascist trajectory. As today's guest, Madiba Denny wrote shortly after the decision, quote, in a 6-3 decision he's dreamt of writing for decades, Chief Justice John Roberts led the supermajority in checking off another item on the conservative legal movement's to-do list, striking down affirmative action writ large, using as a vehicle the race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, end quote. Today, we're going to get a better understanding of this decision, its impact, and most essentially, in my opinion, the colorblind fallacy that's at the heart of it, and how it fits into the larger effort to erase racism from the collective consciousness. To do that, I am so glad to be chatting with Madiba Denny. Madiba is an attorney and columnist. Her legal and political commentary has been featured in a bunch of places you regularly go to, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Balls and Strikes, The Nation, and many more. She has taught at Western Washington University and NYU School of Law. As a counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice, she provided legal and policy analysis regarding a range of democracy issues, including the census, the courts, and attempts to disempower communities of color. Welcome, Madiba. Hello. So excited to be here. We're so glad to have you. So one thing that I was talking about with some folks is that before we get into the case, we actually have to talk about what affirmative action is and what it okay. isn't, <laughs> because I think that there's a lot of confusion about what's going on at universities. I was hoping that you could briefly just walk our listeners through what is affirmative action and how did it come about? You mentioned a really good point about sort of like not understanding how affirmative action works, because reading through the Supreme Court's opinion in the sort of comically named Students for Fair Admissions case, it becomes very clear that the conservative justices on the court have no idea how affirmative action works. Like the opinion reflects a fundamental misunderstanding. In their telling of it, schools are just handing out racial preferences uh, to like Black students, Latino students, Native American students. They are sort of like rigidly categorizing students, checking off a box and saying, okay, if you are this color on our Lowe's or Home Depot like color palette from the paints, then you get admitted. If not, we show you the door. And that's just not at all how things work in practice. Neither the court nor the group challenging the admissions programs pointed to any instance of someone admitted solely because of their race, because there are no such instances. How affirmative action actually worked, I think it's a little more accurate to call it reparative action, because what we're looking here are 
policies of exclusion that existed for a very long time at these schools, where they would deny admission to applicants solely on the basis of their race. So now they have opted to use race as one of many factors for inclusion to try create diverse student bodies instead, as a result of the like civil rights movement and pressure and government moving along and saying, okay, we need to do something about this. We need to like remedy this practice that's disserving our students, disserving our schools, disserving the country. To present the clearest picture, the rationale used to uphold race-conscious admissions in the past was to foster the sort of like diverse student bodies. The court did expressly and sort of absurdly reject the rationale of remedying historical discrimination. The majority of the court, not all of the justices, but the majority of the court was like, that's too big and too amorphous. We can't just have schools out here trying to fix society. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But they did understand a rationale of Diverse student bodies are good. There are like compelling educational reasons why it's valuable. And I said, okay, so if you want to use race in some like narrowly tailored way as like one component among many to basically engage in a holistic admissions process and look at the whole student, the whole person who's applying, I said, that makes sense to us that you can do a have at it. But the court about a month ago, I guess at this point, said not so fast. And even though they didn't use the magic O overrule word. It was very clear what they're describing as unlawful and how they're trying to limit future actions that they basically are overruling a whole host of Supreme Court decisions that have upheld the constitutionality of race conscious admissions in the past. Thank you so much for that breakdown. When I was doing some research when the decision first came out and trying to understand the full gravity of what this means, I was struck by how little the media was reporting about why we had affirmative action to begin with, that missing from the stories were any real mention of the legacy of the fact that even just taking one of these schools, UNC, right, that for so long, Black people weren't even considered for admissions. It was a slave state when the U.S. was founded. UNC was founded in something like 1789. And it was part of slavery defending Confederacy during the Civil War. And despite the fact that it had one of the country's largest populations of Black people, the first Black student was not admitted into UNC until 1955. And that's only after a federal court said, y'all got to desegregate. Like, I think that there's a need to like re-ground people and like where this fucking right. came from to begin with. 1955, you said, right? Yeah. That's so absurdly recent. The way I like to sort of present this to people is Betty White's lifespan. This is less than one Betty White ago. That's how recently we're talking. Exactly. It's all so long ago. This was all in, in our nation's past. And it's like, like very much in our nation's present. <laughs> exactly. Okay, the case. What does the case say? And in what ways is it kind of putting, I guess, colorblindness or race neutrality at the center of this decision? The conservative supermajority really emphasizes this myth of racial neutrality and colorblindness in the Constitution. This is connected to a previous John Roberts opinion, where he halted the integration of schools in the 90s. And he had a famous line in this decision that was like, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. It's completely totalized. I'm sorry, that's just too much. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? <laughs> it's silly if you think about it for like more than approximately two seconds. But he presents it as this really uh, reasoned and logical thing. He's really sort of pulling a fast one on the audience because you would think that, you know, in the first instance, he's talking about discrimination as in subordination. But in the second instance of discrimination, he's really just talking about making distinctions. Just because the schools in that case is called like parents involved versus like Seattle school system, I think might be the name of the case. It was when a lot of local governments were busing students to like integrate schools because of the way housing segregation is set up. Even if you just tried to use folks who lived near each other, it would still produce all segregated schools. And John Roberts said that was a no-go. We're seeing something very similar in this case where he says eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. And once again, we're not actually talking about discrimination and what I think we would describe as real discrimination, like oppression, subordination, like entrenching like social, economic, and like racial hierarchies. But that's not what John Roberts is talking about at all. He's just talking about noticing that some people are of different races and as a result have different experiences. That's he's deeming acceptable. Eliminating racial discrimination is eliminating all of it because recognizing race even if you're considering race in order to address racism, for him, those are the same thing. And that's the case for the conservative legal movement broadly, and also for like the other justices. Clarence Thomas has a concurring opinion in the case, and he has a line that was like, two wrongs don't make a right. The cure to racialism is not more racialism. And it's just absurd if you really think about it, because the argument kind of boils down to Good things and bad things are the same, actually, which <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And the dissenting justices are trying so hard to make that clear. We have Justice Jackson saying, okay, look, when we've repeatedly, historically passed laws and built institutions that deliberately funnel benefits to white people, just not doing that anymore isn't enough because you're not going to actually put those people on equal footing. These so-called colorblind or like race-blind policies still inflict race-based harms because they're building on top of this already uneven, already like racially discriminatory foundation. Unless you've addressed that foundation, you're not going to be able to solve the problem. You cannot actually work to fulfill the Constitution's demand of equality if you ignore all the ways in which things are unequal. So that's really what colorblindness means when invoked by the conservatives on the court and the conservative legal movement more generally. It's not so much colorblindness as being blindfolded. It's ignoring the racism that already exists, doing a sort of dodo bird, like sticking your head in the sand. If I can't see racism, racism can't see me. Meanwhile, racism exists all around you all the same. In my opinion, part of that is more sinister in that that is a cover that they can conveniently use or a justification as they seek to, in their minds, put people back in their place in the hierarchy, yeah. those days that they long for. And I no, think that's absolutely right. Yeah. It gives like a convenient cover of neutrality, acting like you're doing something so simple and equally applicable and noble when it's actually the exact opposite. It's inverting the whole purpose of like the Equal Protection Clause and of the Reconstruction Era amendments. Something that I found deeply disturbing was that the opinion repeatedly compares itself to Brown v. Board, as did the groups challenging the admissions process. They keep invoking Brown v. Board. They say, like, if Brown is right, that means that Bruder and Baki and all the other cases upholding race affirmative action. But like, if Brown is right, then these must be wrong. 
And it reflects a purposeful, calculated, really unseemly mischaracterization. Instead of taking a lesson from Brown of integrate schools, don't racially subordinate. Their takeaway instead was don't think about race at all. That is misstate the lesson. And don't think about race at all. That means that you don't have to do anything about the racism all around you. And in fact, not just do you not have to do anything, it makes doing anything constitutionally suspect. It sets up uh, remedial efforts of any sort of law and policy work to foster a more equitable society, it sets that up for failure by making it seem legally suspect because it's like, oh, you're taking into account that these people are oppressed. You're not supposed to do that. You should just continue to let them be oppressed. This whole idea of neutrality and colorblindness is in fact a purposeful choice to uphold oppression. What do we need to understand in terms of the impacts? What are going to be the immediate impacts that prospective students will face? What are the broader impacts that you see coming down the pipe from this decision? So I think an immediate impact will definitely be fewer people of color at some of these schools. And if there aren't fewer people of color at some of these schools, I think you'll see some more lawsuits. There's not really clear guidelines within the opinions about what ways race might still be considered. John Roberts tries to throw people a bone towards the end when he's like, if an applicant has like a personal story of like race-based hardship, again, just misunderstanding the way racism works, ignoring the sort of systemic aspects, but thinking about- It could only be an individual. Yeah, like an individual, just like a dude on the street being (laughs) harassed and saying like, this was a formative experience for me. And like putting the onus on some like 17 year old kids of color to just- talk about their, yeah, this like individual personalized experience instead of recognizing the way that race permeates through everything in this country. I suspect that if you don't see a drop off in enrollment of students of color, especially like Black and Latino students, then I think you're going to see more challenges like the challenges in the Harvard case and UNC cases, because schools will be like, you're trying to integrate by another means, and that's still not allowed. The opinion does say something like that. Oh, you can't just try accomplish this unconstitutional goal in like another way as like a proxy. And some of these are really concerning. One of the liberal justices asked during the oral arguments of the uh, Students for Fair Admissions folks said, okay, well, what if instead of looking at race generally, they looked at descendants of enslaved people specifically? That's an individualized thing that happened, framing it that way. The guy hemmed and hawed. He was like, eh, well, like, if that's just a proxy for race, I don't know. <laughs> and so that's like, okay, hang on, like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm really not certain there's any level of students of color enrollment that these people won't find legally suspect. That's the sort of, the sort of most immediate consequence would be either a, some combination of a drop-off in students of color enrollment or lawsuits to challenge that students of color are still enrolled. Now, the second thing I think we need to be concerned about goes beyond higher education, but about how, whether race-related laws and policies or just any sort of pro-equity anti-oppression policy gets treated in the course. Because again, it sort of like sets them up for failure, acts as if the mere consideration of this axis of oppression is the same as oppression. So I think you're going to need to be on the lookout for that. Something that I'm concerned with is the Voting Rights Act. 
because reading the opinion, the opinion in the affirmative action cases came down, I think maybe a couple days after or like a day after the Voting Rights Act decision. It's hard to reconcile the two because in the Voting Rights Act decision, John Roberts is in the majority again, but writing with the liberal justices this time. And he says correctly that the Voting Rights Act does allow for the consideration of race. Just the fact that race is considered does not mean it was unconstitutionally considered. Reading it then, it's hard to square the two because it's like, I mean, you're right, but that's not what you said here. (laughs) So now we have a conflict between these two areas of law. And sure enough, some conservatives have already started a renewed push against the Voting Rights Act saying, well, you said in the affirmative action cases, you're not supposed to think about race. So shouldn't we not think about race here as well? These are all very much connected. There's another connection here between the two that I want to highlight. The same forces, the same funders, the same masterminds are behind all of these same cases. The students for fair admissions cases at Harvard and UNC were spearheaded by the same guy, Edward Bloom, who spearheaded Shelby County versus Holder, where they struck down the key portions of the voting rights act. These are all part and parcel of an ongoing conservative legal mission to defang all of the Constitution's equitable tools and cloak white hegemony in the Constitution instead. Just like in Shelby as well, we had an insistence among the conservative justices during oral arguments and in some of the opinion as well about the need for an end point. They kept saying, you know, are you still trying to have affirmative action policies 10 years from now, 20 years from now? This has to end. Like, where is the logical end point? That was very similar to a line of argument that was accepted in Shelby and that Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in the present Voting Rights Act case was sort of hinting for people to use in the future. It really gets at what Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was saying in her dissent in Shelby when she says, ending this when it's been working is basically like throwing out your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. That's what we're seeing here once again. This has been the case for as long as the country has tried to do the right thing, There have been people saying, still, (laughs) like we're not done yet. There's a line that should not be funny. It's just kind of funny and how ridiculous it is in a, a series of cases from the 1880s. And the court was already complaining that they had been doing too much for formerly enslaved people who had been freed. Here's a direct quote. There must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorite of the laws. That was in the 1880s. (laughs) So like literally as soon as the country started taking any steps to remediate this history of injustices against Black people specifically and like other marginalized people more generally, as soon as it did, the court was like, are we really still doing this? This again, like haven't we done enough for you people? And that's the exact same kind of thing you see happening in the voting rights Act case. And that's the exact same thing you see happening in the affirmative action cases when the conservatives are just, why are we still doing this? Aren't we past this already? Like, come on. Well, maybe instead of being focused on when you end any consideration of race, how about we pay more attention to ending racism? How about that? In thinking about the consequences of this decision and the broadness that they could have in both teeing up for the further, (laughs) I mean, it's already gutted 
we're kicking it when it's down. Voting rights are, but also for broadly, any efforts to identify, let alone take any step to remediate white supremacy. It's really stunning. And I was looking at a piece by Professor Dominique Baker that was Mm. early last month, was published by the Scientific American, which I thought was interesting that it was published there. One of the points that she was making that I, I wanted to get your thoughts on was that she was talking about these cases not happening in a vacuum, that at the same time that the highest court in the land is ripping away affirmative action, we see legislation across the country that is seeking to muzzle any conversations of Mm -hmm. this country's past and how these two things actually work together. The Mm -hmm. fact that you have the quote unquote stop woke act happening in tandem with, okay, and now we're not going to have black folks at universities. You mentioned earlier uh, efforts to ban any DEI efforts that are happening both at the university level and even within corporations that want to have discussions about equity or let's be clear, this is not radical stuff. This is not (laughs) radical stuff. Okay. It's like the baseline kind of stuff. (laughs) Exactly. This is, I think she puts it as a part of a larger effort to pretend racism doesn't exist. What do you see as the connection between a case like the one that we're discussing and this broader legislation and what connections should we be making in this moment where it definitely is clear that there is an effort to erase racism from the cultural consciousness. And I can't help but think that it has something to do with the fact that a couple of years back now, there was the biggest uprising from the people trying to put white supremacy in this country in the public consciousness, you know? Yeah. So now across all kinds of law, uh, whether at the local level or federal level or what have you, now there's like a more dedicated, renewed effort to say white supremacy. What white supremacy? What are you talking about? No white supremacy to see here. And I do think that's a correct observation that the affirmative action case and some of these other legal efforts more generally are connected to the kinds of Stop Woke Act or the book bans we see in that they're doing a couple things. They're trying to deny what the actual experience of being Black is, saying that the experience of being an oppressed person in America doesn't matter. Going further, that the experience of being an oppressed person might not even exist. There might not be oppressed people. If you try to say otherwise, then they'll stop you with these like speech bans, or they'll stop you by removing your presence from these schools and these institutions in the first place. It's sort of like a broader effort to like remove uh, marginalized people from public life altogether. So it's very dark, very concerning stuff. I wanted to explore how people have reacted to this decision and a troubling trend that shouldn't surprise me, but it does anyway, (laughs) in a similar way to, you know, you had made connections in your piece for Bells and Strikes to the Dobbs decision and kind of these trap doors, right? I'm also seeing similarities in the way that people react or don't Mm. in the quickness that people have to somehow feel like, well, the best and only thing we can do is kind of find a way that we're going to work within this new quote unquote normal. It was like headlines the day 
after about ways that we can still sneak in our identity and that there's a loophole here with don't forget about those essays, (laughs) which all put the, I think as you put it, all put this responsibility on 17-year-olds, putting on kids the need to prove the resiliency as oppressed people. And in every instance, it has to be a victorious outcome, obviously. There couldn't be like a story or an essay on how being a young Black man never felt (laughs) easy. And there was no like happy ending. It just Mm -hmm. sucked and was... (laughs) scary. That's not what Roberts is talking about. Yeah, so, no, he wants to like, I heroically overcame something. This has earned me a spot. Exactly. And I think that despite this big middle finger that the Supreme Court gave to young Black people and, and other people of color, the wake of the decision, people are coached to see this as maybe it's not that big of a deal, or there's a loophole, we can get around it. I was really surprised. Again, I shouldn't be, I should grow up, that there was no uproar Mm -hmm. besides like some columns, which were very good and right, and not dismissing people who spoke out against it right on. But the streets should have been filled with people in the same way that this was one in the first place. I just struck by like how quick we are as a people to be like, okay, we're going to find the workaround. And I I want to hear your thoughts on that. I think there are a couple things that are relevant there. One is about affirmative action specifically, and the other is about people's understanding of the role of the courts more generally. Reaffirmative action specifically, I do think that the right wing has had like a very successful propaganda game. So I think that people might not have felt the need to be as up in arms or mobilized because some of that incorrect framing about racial preferences or people getting like spots they didn't deserve and stuff like, oh, they're taking away something from you because this is a zero sum game. I think some of that could have permeated the culture. And so people didn't see the broader harms or like weren't as aware of them as they otherwise might have been because of the strength of the like propaganda. So that's the first part. The second part, I think, is that you're absolutely right. And that liberals or like other left-leaning people more generally in particular are really inclined to accept the, the court as a legitimate institution and as something that you like have to follow. And this is kind of a unilateral disarmament in a way, because conservatives very famously rejected that. (laughs) There's a long history of conservatives being, this rule is bad and I'm not going to follow it. Or congrats with what you thought you did, but I'm going to proceed differently anyway. And I do recognize that that has some degree of risk. Chiefly, I do think that if Harvard was like, (laughs) thank you, next, like I'm just going to proceed, then Ed Bloom and them would probably be right back in court anyway. You do have to have screw you money in a sense, if you like wanted to take that on because you would probably continue to get sued a lot. But still, in terms of popular resistance and like protests or things, there is a lot more that people can be doing to say no. Justice Sotomayor, she has a really important line towards the end of her dissent in the affirmative action case, where she says, I'm going to quote here, despite the court's unjustified exercise of power, the opinion today will serve only to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. So she's basically acknowledging here and encouraging regular people 
you don't actually have to stand for this. We as the court only have as much power as we, the people, give the court. You can and should reject the court proceeding in this awful inequality furthering oppressive way. So that's absolutely something that I think liberals need to become more comfortable with. I think it can be a little hard because of the way we're told, oh, like rules are there to protect you. And also that we did for a beautiful fleeting moment, have a really strong court in the 1960s-ish era, the Warren court, which gave us Brown v. Board and gave us Reynolds v. Sims, which is a big case about equal representation for people in Congress, and gave us the Miranda rights case. A lot of good things happened in that short period of time. And so I think There's this idea of, yes, okay, we have these justices, as like their name is, are supposed to further and protect and promote justice. There's like, wait, something is not computing when the justices actually behave unjustly. I think folks struggle with that. So I think we need to realize that the Supreme Court has mostly had an uninterrupted trend, almost, you know, except for that bit, mostly had an like, uninterrupted trend for about 150 years or so of undermining the Reconstruction Amendments. And so we should be demanding the fulfillment of the Reconstruction Amendments instead and saying, like, I think what you're saying is bogus. I have just as much a right to interpret the Constitution as you do. And I'm saying you got it wrong. I would love to see regular people and like people with some degree of formal power as well, just like straight up say, you're wrong. We need to get way more comfortable saying the court is wrong and acting accordingly. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and perspective and insights with us. And of course, your time. I know that I learned a lot and I know that everyone listening did too. If folks want to, which I know they will, read (laughs) or hear more from you, where can they go? I frequently can find writing about the law and its real impacts on people at Balls and Strikes. And I am also currently writing a book about the Constitution and what we should be doing instead. So I guess this time next year, it should be on the shelves. So be on the lookout for what we're doing, reclaiming the Constitution. Thanks so much, Mediba. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. Got thoughts or questions off this episode? We want to hear them. Ideas for topics or guests? Yes, please. Send them to us. Have a skill you think could help? We want to know all about it. Reach me at the site previously known as Twitter at Sam B. Goldman. Drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org. Find us on Threads or Mastodon. We're at Refuse Fascism. Or leave a voicemail. See the show notes for the link to do it. You click a button and we can hear your voice and your thoughts. We'd love it. Want to support the show? It's simple. As I said at the top of the show, the biggest way to show us love is by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also become a patron to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. Give today at patreon.com slash refusefascism or visit refusefascism.org and hit that donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each show. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox. 
We'll be off next Sunday, but we'll be back Sunday, August 27th with an interview with Mike Rothschild discussing his forthcoming book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. You're going to want to hear it. You're not going to want to miss it. So again, follow, subscribe, so you get it as soon as we upload. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. <laughs>